I'm Jeff Cohen. You're probably familiar with the phrase mistaken identity. Our next guest, Rifki Silver, was repeatedly misidentified as Jewish, so much so that she actually started exploring the religion. The fact that she's here today to share her story probably gives you a good idea of where that religious exploration led. So let's get started and find out the details of her Jewish journey. Rifki, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. I love your podcast, and I'm so excited to talk with you today. And of course, later in the interview, we're going to get into your podcast, because I am now a faithful listener of yours. So we have something in common. It's nice to have a podcasting host as a guest. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. <laughs> so I know we'll get into the whole mistaken identity story. But before that, let's get to know you a little bit and where your story begins. Sure. So it begins in sunny California. I was born in Orange County. Um, I used to say I was born in L.A., and then I started meeting people from L.A., and they were like, where are you from? I was like, oh, Mission Viejo, I was born. And they're like, that's not L.A., that's Orange <laughs> County. It's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't know. My parents were both Midwesterners, so we moved away from California when I was about like 18 months to two years old. Because after I was born, they were like, oh, this is really far from family. And they also wanted to raise me like in the Midwest where they, they understood the values. You know, the Midwest, it's like a different vibe than California. And they wanted to raise me in a place where they kind of understood and appreciated the culture. So when I was like two-ish, we moved back to the Midwest and we bounced around between a few different Midwestern cities before we eventually ended up in Des Moines, Iowa when I was 10 years old. All right. And how were you being raised religiously? Protestant. All right. So tell us a little bit more about that. Like what are some of the things your family was doing? Were you going to any kind of schooling outside of public school? No, we went to, I always went to public school, like really excellent public schools. We lived in good suburbs and they had great education. But we went to church very regularly. We went every Sunday. My mom was really into it. My dad was less so into it, but he's like a nice husband and supportive. So like he also went when we were little. Um, as we got older, it tapered off a bit. He liked football also. I, you know, it's, that's how it is. And as I got older, I also started getting involved in the youth group in my, in my church. That would be like like Wednesday nights, like a weeknight type of thing. We would get together and there'd be singing and as they call it, fellowship. And I remember I had like a study Bible. There was like a churchy store and I got like churchy stuff and bumper stickers. I was like, I was into it, but I was, it was not like my only identity. I was also like a very regular like Midwestern teenager, you know, I had like an after school job and I went to prom and homecoming and I did extracurriculars. So like church was part of my identity as it was for many people in, in Des Moines and in like the very solidly Protestant area where I was being raised, but it was part of the wallpaper, so to speak. It wasn't like my only identity. Right. And sometimes kids are getting involved in religion just because their parents are and they're just like following wherever their parents are going. So did you have some of a feeling of I'm, I'm just kind of doing what my family does? Or did you personally feel a connection to religion during those younger years? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember enjoying it. I remember liking Sunday school. I remember I had very fond memories. You know, we did, um, we did fun things like ski trips and like concerts. And I volunteered at a home for children with developmental disabilities. I remember taking them for like birthday presents, like going shopping with them or something. I definitely had no like existential questions about it. You know, I was probably going along because that's the system in which I was being raised and it was working and I, I, I liked it. So I didn't have any questions. I think when I got towards like later in high school, like I started getting a little bit more like having a little bit more questions about you know, who I was and who I was going to be and like, did I really believe in God? Um, like all those like, you know, coming of age kind of uh, individuation questions that you, you have at that developmental point, but like nothing like huge and angsty. I had a great childhood and my parents are great and my younger brother is great, even though he was an annoying younger brother. <laughs> so, so like everything, I just was the kind of, per I like did what I was supposed to do. I was a, a good girl. I stayed out of trouble. I worked hard and I did what was expected of me socially. 
Did you know anything about Judaism or have any Jewish friends or know anything about like synagogues in the area? Well, it was Des Moines, so there was not really a large Jewish presence, as you can understand. But my piano teacher, Gilda Beale, was Jewish from Brooklyn, of all places. Her husband was the principal violinist of the Des Moines Symphony, so they ended up in Des Moines, Iowa. And I took lessons with her my whole childhood. She was exceptional. I had a friend, Nicole Chavez, in high school who was Jewish. Like, Jessica Barron was Jewish. I had, like, a smattering. Ari Simon was conservative. We remember he was a very serious Jew. He took piano lessons with Gilda and uh, Mrs. Beale. And, uh, like, my piano recitals were in her synagogue, actually. But that was really the extent of it. Isn't it amazing when you think where your story is going to head as we go through this interview that something at that age was not even on your radar, like that this could happen to your life, not something that you're thinking about, not like how all. little you know about who you're going to be at that age. It's, it's like a remarkable transformation where your story is going to head later in the interview. Yeah, yeah, it really is looking back and, and seeing like I had, of course, I had no idea. No one had any idea. <laughs> and so what was going to happen next coming out of high school you talked about you're starting to ask questions not necessarily religious questions but just who you're going to be what you want to do so are you thinking about college and career like where's your head at during like those later teen years for sure well it was like almost a given that i was going to go to college that was 100 percent the expectation i was a good student so there was no question i i ended up getting a, a very decent scholarship to a liberal arts school in missouri called truman state university which is in the northeast corner of missouri in a town called Kirksville, which is very, very small. And unless you're from the region, you've probably never heard of it. Um, so it's a good school. I got a music scholarship. And I was debating, like, should I study music, French, or English? All very practical <laughs> majors. <as laughs> Things that tell. make a parent proud. Oh, my God. I don't know. My parents, like, they were just happy for me to go to college. Like, there was no, like, you need to have a plan. And I did have a plan. I was going to go. I was going to do music education. I was going to hopefully get higher degrees in music, you know, master's, maybe a doctorate, and hopefully do like dual performance and also teaching at a at some sort of like hopefully higher level. That was my plan. And then when I got to college, it was interesting because like I said, I had always kind of gone along with the social expectations of wherever I was, which was fine when I was growing up in Des Moines. But then when I got to college, like the social expectations were wildly different than those which I had grown up with. So here I was expected to like find myself and explore and try new things. But all like the new things and all the finding myself were things that like my parents 100% would not have approved of. Like it was like the college experience. I'm doing air quotes, college experience, you know, go drink warm beer out of a plastic cup with people you don't know. It sounds awful when I say it now <laughs> as like a mother. I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> But, um, you know, that was expectation and to go have all these crazy experiences, which just like, you know, three months ago when I was in high school, I never would have dreamed of doing. But now it's like, but that's college and that's what everyone's doing. Not everyone, but, you know, that was the perception. And then also something else that I noticed was that being like overtly religious was like deeply uncool. There was it was not maybe explicitly said, but it was implicitly felt, at least by me. That if you buy into organized religion, like you can be spiritual, you can like have, I don't know, some practice, but if you buy into organized religion, then you must not actually be able to think. <laughs> that was like the vibe. And I didn't really connect to any of the like Christian organizations on campus. So that also didn't help. You know, I was like, eh, it doesn't feel like it's for me. So I kind of just drifted off into the college experience. I still studied, I still did well, I graduated with honors. But as far as like, what was I supposed to do with my life on like an actual life level, not professional level, not like jobs, but like as a human being functioning in the world with other human beings, I was very much adrift. And I had a lot of really cool college experiences. Like I studied abroad and I was in a band and blah, blah, blah. It was very cool, but like I wasn't happy. But none of my friends were happy. We were all like full of angst and existential crises. So like it just, I was like, well, I guess this is the stage of life now. We're all having an existential crisis all the time. Fantastic. 
It's so funny how you describe the kinds of things you get involved in in college. I tell my friends who are religious that I was in a fraternity in college, and none of them were, like, if they went to YU. Like, if they were raised religious from the beginning, they wouldn't have been in a fraternity. So they're like, what is it like? I said, it's actually not all that different from community life that I have now, except the goals of the organization are completely different. <laughs> but the, the community feeling is the same. But what we were aspiring for was, like, totally different than what we do now. So that's, that's the best way I can connect it. But I totally hear you on the things you were doing in college and what was cool and how that affected your decisions. It's a tricky time of life, so I understand we have that angst and why a lot of your friends did also. Yeah. So coming out of it, I, I had a, a degree in music, but I kind of was adrift and not really sure, like, what to do next, you know? There was no, like, clear roadmap. There was no syllabus, so to speak. So it was. I ended up moving back home with my parents to try to figure out what my next step was going to be. And that's when all the crazy hishkacha started happening to me. As you're trying to think about what you want to do, are you working at this point? While you're home, like, have you taken a first step in a career? Like, what, what are you doing? Is it related to music or you're in something else? So, no, it was not related to music. I actually had a very big disappointment, which was I didn't get accepted to my graduate school choices. I applied to, like, three very top-tier graduate schools, and I didn't get into them. So I was like, oh, now what? And I spent, like, the first three months right after college basically just being in denial that I had to come up with a plan B because I hadn't had plan B. And, like, none of my professors anticipated this outcome. Like, no one saw this outcome coming. And so I wasn't quite sure what to do. And my dad kept like putting like classified ads like in my room, like maybe this job, maybe this job. And I was just like, no, I can't. I was like writing bad poetry. And like I was in denial that like my like bohemian artistic lifestyle was like coming to a very screeching halt. And my friends were going on to graduate school and I was like, I needed to find a job and like not just like loll around in my parents' house. I ended up getting a job at a law firm doing entry level work. And it's funny because like the whole entry level team was like philosophy majors, music majors, English majors, like you know, sociology majors, uh -huh. like all of us <laughs> together doing data entry for this law firm. It wasn't um, people who dreamed of being a lawyer from the time they were five. It was not. It was not. But then I was thinking like, well, I don't know. Do I really want to do music for my whole life? Like I love music. I love it so much to this day. But like majoring specifically in classical clarinet performance is extremely niche. <laughs> right. Do I want to focus so singularly on something so narrow for the rest of my life? One of my professors gave me great advice, which was, he's like, I understand you're upset. I would be upset too. But you have an incredible opportunity where now you can say, do I want to do this? And if you do, then next year, reapply to different master's programs and try again. But if you don't want to do it, this is a great time to think about what you do want to do. Which is great advice, but also then I had like, you know, we're this generation, we were raised being told that we could do anything. You can do anything if you just put your mind to it. That that actually was very terrifying. I was like, anything? Like, <laughs> I, I had like choice paralysis. Like, wh what do I, where do I go first? So I ended up getting a job at this law firm. I was like, so maybe, maybe law. I don't know. I don't know anything. So I just, but I, I did know that I like to do well and I like to give my all. So I gave my all to this job. And um, I started getting like more, they gave me more responsibility because they saw that I was capable. And so then I kind of dove into this like professional world and uh, decided to see like, what, what was this like? How, how to try on those shoes? Like, do I like this? And this is where the mistaken identity part of your journey happens during this time period at the law firm? Yeah. Okay. So what happens? So the first time it happened, I was like outside. I would take breaks sometimes outside. And there was a guy who worked in the same office building as me, different business, same office building. We'd be outside sometimes at the same time and we would schmooze. And after like a few months of like talking to each other, he was like, so what temple do you go to? And I was like, I don't go to any <laughs> temple. Like, I was raised Protestant. I'm not really anything now. <laughs> and then it was like slightly awkward. He was like, oh, I was like, sorry. The second time it happened, I was like 
at a party by WashU. By the way, my parents moved to St. Louis when I was in college. So now we're not in Des Moines anymore. Now we're in St. Louis, which does have a more substantial Jewish population. So I was at a party near WashU, which has a very, very high population of Jewish students. And um, some girl was like, hey, member of the tribe. And I was like, no, in fact, I, no. And then I was at a coffee shop, like minding my own business, writing in a journal, having some coffee. And some guy came up to me and he was like, are you secular or religious? <laughs> Neither. Like I was like, I didn't even understand like the context of the question. I was like, what do you, what's that? He was like, you should go to H.com. And I was, he was like, be Makar of me. Right. And I was like, you should, okay, go away. I don't know you. Like it happened at a hip hop concert there. And then the most dramatic thing was I was at a bar and a German exchange student came up to me and asked me if I was Jewish. And I was like, uh, I didn't even know what to answer at this point. I was like, I don't why, why does everyone keep asking me this? And so he apologized for the Holocaust. Uh-huh. And I was like, it's okay. And he was like, it's not okay. And I was like, you're right. It's, it's not okay. <laughs> but, um, but like, I'm not the person you need to be apologizing to. Did you ask any of these people, like you're giving these four or five, six examples, were you asking any of them, like, what are you seeing in me that's making you think that I'm Jewish? No, I was just so flabbergasted. Were you asking yourself that question? Like, what do they keep seeing? Well, I, I, I was having lunch with my mom shortly after this, and I told her, I was like, Mom, it's so weird. People keep asking me if I'm Jewish. That's so weird. And she was like, oh, yeah, that happened to my mom all the time, too. And I was like, I'm sorry? What? And she told me that my grandmother had worked in a hair salon. I knew that part. I knew she was a hairstylist. Um, and she worked in a salon in Milwaukee, and she had a lot of Jewish clients. And my mom said that they were always like, Irene, you look so Jewish. Are you sure you're not Jewish? And I had grown up thinking my grandmother was German. So this was like new information. And then, you know, I was living in my parents' basement. My mom saved like all my school projects. So I had to go through all these boxes of like my school projects. I found some project from like eighth grade that I had done where I had mapped out like genealogy, like eye and hair color for ancestors. And one of my relatives was really into ancestry. And she sent me like this whole thing about like all my ancestors who had come from Europe in like the 1800s on my mother's side. I didn't know that was relevant at the time. So like on my mother's side um, and the name of the ancestors that came over from Europe in Prussia, which doesn't exist anymore. It's Poland now, that area. Their, their name was Kramer. And then there were Millers and there were Newmans also in this family tree. And I was like, oh, my gosh, we're totally Jewish. This is crazy. <laughs> All these strangers were onto something. They knew something I didn't. I was like, what is this business? So I remember that random guy told me to go to H.com. So I, I, I was like, well, like, what does it mean to be Jewish? I knew Mrs. Beale, my piano teacher. I knew my friends from high school. Like, I knew that there was Passover. I knew there was Rosh Hashanah. Like, I knew, like, the basic bare bones thing i knew i liked the beastie boys they were jewish and very cool you know like i had like a lot of philo-semitism like i was very i had a very positive feeling towards the jewish people so my initial reaction was like oh if i'm jewish that is so sweet i love jews they're so cool but what does it mean to be jewish besides like all these cultural things which obviously i had no connection to because i had been raised protestant so like doesn't matter i know all this jewish cultural stuff has no you know connection to me wait though you you said that you were looking at all these last names and thinking Maybe if you go back two or three generations, like there actually is Judaism. Did you ever confirm if that was true or not from, from doing this digging? So not through doing this digging, because when I was doing this digging at the end of it, like for a few months, I was looking into it and all of these um, relatives were Lutherans. They were all Lutherans. They were buried in Lutheran cemeteries in Minnesota. So if anyone had ever been Jewish, it was like back in like Derheim. I wasn't about to go to Poland to like look for graves. Right. So as far as I knew... There was none. And my mom, actually, one of her best friends gave her like a 23andMe for like a birthday present like recently for her last birthday. And she took the test. We have no Jewish ancestry at all. Not even a smidgen. Not even a little. 
But at this point in my life, when I was like, you know, working at this job and having all this mistaken identity and like receptive to making big changes, you know, it was looking back, I was at a very receptive point in my life. I had a lot of freedom of movement. I wasn't tied down to anything really at all. And that's when Hashem decided to like plop these names in my, in my life to make me think like, maybe we had some Jewish ancestry. Maybe I should look into it. What does it mean to be Jewish? Well, there's this website called H.com. Maybe I should go read about it. And that's what I did. <laughs> so what happened when you started exploring the articles there? I was really impressed. The first articles I started reading were like dating advice because like my romantic life was a disaster. So I was like, maybe they have better advice than where I'm currently getting advice, which was like Cosmo magazine, which is not a good source of advice. I just want to put it out there. Not a good place to get advice. <laughs> um, so I read their dating advice and I was like, this is amazing. And then I started reading just more and I was really moved by the concept of the mitzvahs being Adam Lechavero. The whole concept of like, this is the way that you should be interacting with people in a society. And this is the way that people in your society should also be reacting. That there was like a social code, so to speak. You know, I had been raised to be a nice person, to be a good person. Like I, I was raised by the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Like be, be a mensch, right? That's how I was raised. But as all of us know, like, interpersonal relationships are complex and feelings get hurt and things that feel wrong happen. And it's not always so easy to navigate the world of feelings and the world of relationships, especially when everyone maybe is operating on like different social codes. Some people are a little bit more mercenary. Some people are a little bit more (laughs) laid back. And so when I was reading about like a society where everyone was supposed to follow these rules, like don't gossip, don't even tell someone that you heard someone else gossiping about them, you know, give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Don't hold a grudge. There's a rule, don't hold a grudge. It's not just like, oh, it's a good idea. Like, no, there's an actual commandment to not do that. In such intricate detail, even so far as to go as to say, like, if you see your friend unloading a donkey and your enemy unloading a donkey, you have to help your enemy first. Because, because again, like, you're not supposed to hate someone in your heart, even if they're a Russia, even if they're an evil person. In, in just the concept that there would be a religion that would have such an incredibly detailed way to go about living and in a society that everyone would be on the same page, more or less. I found that extremely compelling and just continuing to read and seeing that Judaism really had like amazing life wisdom for any situation that I could possibly find myself in happy situations, complicated situations, sad situations, like how to grieve, how to, how to celebrate, you know, new life, new marriage, like whatever it's, I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is literally the syllabus for how to live an incredibly meaningful and satisfying life. Like, this is amazing. Why doesn't, why isn't everyone talking about this? Why didn't I know that this existed? Like, this is amazing. I was just like so surprised that I had never heard about these concepts and that I didn't know that this was like part of Judaism, that it was more than the Beastie Boys. <laughs> See, I, I would, I would think if, if I were reading those articles and I'm not Jewish, that my instinct would be to say, what a great life code. Like I can just take these lessons and this is how I'm going to carry myself. It wouldn't necessarily make me think, and therefore I should be Jewish. I wouldn't necessarily think I have to convert in order to like adopt some of the things that I'm learning, but it must have grabbed you in a different way. Like not only did you like what you were hearing, but you felt somehow like part of this was to actually be Jewish in order to to live this way. Is that how you were feeling as you were learning more about it? Yeah, it was more like if there's a place where there's a community where people are all buying into this and they're all living according to this way, that's where I want to be. So it's true I could have adopted a lot of the advice and whatever, and I could have gone about my life, but I would have been surrounded by people who who were doing whatever they wanted to do. Like the idea that it was like a cohesive communal religion where everyone would be on the same page and everyone would be following the same rules. That was what I found tremendously compelling, the community aspect. At the same time, though, 
because I was raised conservative with like very little religion. Yeah. If I were reading those articles, I wouldn't have known any of those things. And the things you're talking about, don't gossip and being part of a community, like that's Orthodox Judaism. It's not Reformed or Conservative Judaism. So as someone who doesn't know about all this and you're learning about it, you might be thinking, oh, if I convert to Reform or Conservative, I get all this stuff. And then you would quickly find out they don't know any of these things, don't live by these things. Or if they do, it's just because they're a good person, but it's not part of their upbringing or what they're told is important. So how much did you know about Reform, Conservative, Orthodox when you started hearing about the way you could carry yourself as a Jewish person? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I I only knew that there was Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox, and I remembered Ari Simon, and I remember like you know, I I didn't really know much beyond that. So I um, I did start out by going to some Reform synagogues and starting to take um like Intro to Judaism classes at a at a Reform synagogue where I was because everyone who I had ever known was in, either unaffiliated or Reform really. And that's where it made the sense, most sense for me also on like a social dynamic as far as like where I was philosophically, it was much more aligned to where I was at the time. But yeah, exactly. I remember very distinctly standing in line for uh, high holiday services and schmoozing with someone in line. And I had mentioned her like, isn't Torah amazing? And she's like, yeah, but you can pick and choose what you want to do. <laughs> and I was like, right, I don't, I think it's pretty holistic. I think you really have to buy into all of it for it to function appropriately, you know? And that's when I was like, I better do my due diligence and check out the other the other ways of doing this too. And I went I went back to the H.com page and I went to the H. St. Louis page and um, I saw they were having a this. I mean, this is after like oh, a year. This is like I'm obviously uh, compressing. It took me. I spent about a year like really kind of like delving into like reform and trying to figure out like what am I doing and like. Also, it was like weird. It was what I was doing felt very weird to me. Like just because I maybe had some Jewish ancestors, maybe that I was like finding out like maybe they weren't really Jewish, but I really liked Judaism. Like I didn't know anyone at my stage of life who was like, let me switch to a new religion. Like that was like no one was doing that. And like, again, I had always followed along with social conventions. This was very out of the box. I had always been a little quirky and creative, but this was like really out of the box. And my friends were all like, what's she doing? And my parents were like, this is an interesting phase. Must be part of the existential crisis. But I really felt this compelling urge to like really see this through even though it was it was weird and I would like hide in the back of synagogues and if a rabbi came to try to like you know greet me at like a Shabbat service I would like kind of like run away because like I was like I don't even know how to explain what I was doing it was very like unusual course of action but um, after a year of exploring the reform world and, and not really finding that what I was reading online was matching up with the what I was experiencing even though everyone was so nice and so warm and so welcoming and like everyone they were great but it wasn't like, I was like, it's not exactly what I'm looking for. So I went to the East St. Louis page and there was like a Shabbaton advertised and it said, you know, RSVP, call to RSVP. So I, I called the number, which was terrifying because now I was like actually calling a rabbi. I couldn't mm -hmm. run away from this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I called and a very nice rabbi answered, Rabbi Gershon Litt, who's now in Norfolk, Virginia, but he was in St. Louis at the time. And um, I said, hi, I saw there's a Shabbaton, like it says RSVP, so I'm RSVPing. He said, great. So the website is wrong. There's not actually a Shabbaton this week, but you can come to my house for Friday night dinner. And I was like, wow, that's so nice. So I'm not Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> is that an issue? <laughs> and he was like, silence. And then he was like, why, why are you calling? <laughs> Fair question. Um, and so I kind of told him my whole like convoluted, like <laughs> everything that had been going on the past year. I thought I might be Jewish, but now I'm not, but I like Judaism. And he still let me come to his house. And I showed up and like, it was just, it was, he had two children at the time, two like little babies. It was like a little townhouse and um, I was the only guest and I don't remember like any of the details of like what they served or the conversation, but I just remember 
the feeling of like, oh, this is what I'm looking for. These people are really like living it in the way that I also want to. Like, this is what I'm looking for. This is it. And so I, I went home that Friday night and I came back the next weekend with an overnight bag. And that was, that was really the beginning of the process of going through the conversion process and the Orthodox conversion. So you never did a reformer conservative conversion. I've interviewed enough people where that often is like a first step because they don't realize that there's like a deeper level of conversion. So because you were exploring, you you didn't do anything at that point. You just kept exploring. Then you hit on the idea that it was going to be an, a full Orthodox conversion, that that would be right for you. Yeah. Well, I had I was almost I almost did a reform conversion. I had actually written out the check. And they had the check. That's pretty close. It was really close. (laughs) But then they had, then I had that experience uh, on the high holidays where like Hashem just sent me a sign. He's like, no, redirect. Like this this isn't where you want to be. And where I I was like, I I felt like I really needed to explore all my options before I committed to any one stream. So let's go inside now the conversion process because you and I were both raised without a lot of religion, but because I was Jewish, there wasn't like a conversion for me. Yes, I had to accept eating kosher, keeping Shabbos. Like there were certain things I had to do, but there was no like based in involved. It was just like, you want to start coming to shul? Great. Like, welcome to the club. Like it felt like pretty simple and changed how I dress. Like it was kind of easy to integrate in that way. I don't feel the same as people who are raised with it. Like I can't read Hebrew at the same speed, but getting into the club felt pretty simple. I would imagine your experience is not the same. So Can you go inside a little bit of kind of the the messiness of the whole thing and how you come out on the other side? Sure. And this is something that I think is um, very interesting in the difference between Bali Chuva and Garam. There's a lot of similarities. Um, But at the same time, with Bali Chuva, a lot of times they're encouraged, you know, go slow, don't take on too much. You want to have like, you know, organic integration of the mitzvahs. And with converts, it's like, all right, you want to be all in? Prove it. <laughs> Show us. <laughs> right, because they're actually trying to turn you away originally. Yeah, right? yeah. And PSA, for all those out there, it doesn't it's not like a, a chiyah for the entire community to turn people away three times. Really, it's just the base then. Like, you don't have to take that upon yourself to keep turning away converts. We know it's hard. Yeah, so the base then, I first I had to get a sponsoring rabbi who then brought me to the base then when the base then decided to like have a, whenever, I don't understand how Bati Dinam work, but whenever they were having a, like a session then I was brought as a potential convert and I was given like a very very long list of books to purchase to read to study and um, I don't, you know it was like many many years ago so I don't remember all the details but basically I was told all right go learn see how it goes you know don't call us we'll call you and I, I really threw myself into it like I, I read so many books I attended every single possible class I could attend. I had chavrusas with people. And again, like I'm like in my early mid-20s. I have a job that doesn't take a lot of, you know, it was it was interesting, but it didn't take a, like a lot of um, thought, you know? So I had a lot of time to do these things. I had a lot of free, uh, my, what's it called? My, my data, my drive was full. Like it was empty. Like, you know what I mean? I had so much headspace. I don't have that. I don't have Baruch Hashem. I don't have the same level of headspace these days. But back then I did. So I could really absorb a lot. And because my job was still a lot of data entry, I checked out all these tapes from like the H tape library and I would just listen for eight hours to Shiram, like Pesach Kron and Rabbi Teller and Rabbi Heller. And I would just listen and I was thinking back on it about how, you know, a lot of these classes, like there's a lot of Hebrew words interspersed, there's Yiddish words, there's yeshivish words. And I don't even know how much I actually even comprehended when I was first listening, probably like 30%. <laughs> but it was like an immersion program. I was like, I'm just gonna dive right in and I'm going to just like learn, 
like sink or swim. I'm just going to learn everything. If I don't understand something, I'll just keep listening and I'll ask questions. And, I'll, you know, it's not easy to feel like you don't have any idea what's going on. Like, what's that word? What's that word? Like, you can't like ask every single word you don't know. You can't always be asking because it's like you'll never have an actual conversation. So it was a lot of like picking up from context and trying to figure things out and getting things wrong and being embarrassed and then trying again, then getting things wrong and being embarrassed and then trying again. <laughs> what did your parents think? Because this is clearly not a phase anymore like it's starting to seem a lot more serious than something that's going to come and go yeah I don't know maybe they thought it would still be a phase but my mom was cute she actually came to some age classes with me my parents have always been tremendously supportive people they still are so she was like all right let me see what my daughter's into so she would come to some age classes and like she's like you know she's still a very devoted Christian and like learning about Jewish concepts she viewed it as kind of like an extension of her own faith let me understand the roots so to speak of of her own faith so she was interested and then my parents were all my, my all the people in the Jewish community were like is your mom gonna convert too I'm like probably not <laughs> but it's cool that she's supporting me and they really, like, the, the Jewish community and the St. Louis community is phenomenal. It made a real kiddish Hashem. Like, they were really warm to her. And, like, they, she saw it was, like, a really, really nice community. And all the gemilas chasadim, like, all the chasad people do for each other. They were really blown away just by the community itself. So that also helped. And also, I, I think it was, they saw I was more content and I was happier. And I was more, even though it was very angsty, the conversion process, because there's no guarantee, like, you're going to actually get accepted. There's no guarantee that they're you're actually going to get converted. It's like... You don't know. There are a lot of people who had come before me who had been trying to convert since before I even came onto the scene, and they hadn't been converted yet. So there was a lot of angst in that process of just like the lack of certainty. But despite that lack of certainty and the angst there, my parents saw like the positive effect it was having on me, and I was a lot more settled. So even though it was definitely not what anyone anticipated, they saw the positive outcome. So I think it definitely softened them towards the possibility of this. And they've also been very like they're very open minded people. So they're like, all right. <laughs> How long did it ultimately take from that moment that you said, this is what I want and you got serious about it and you're learning till you actually got through the conversion? And then I'm wondering, post conversion, it's like, OK, now you have your ID card, but that doesn't mean you're part of the club like there's still a whole process of like learning how to live this way so what's going yes. on at that point exactly that's so well put so it actually only took me a year which is shockingly short really when I look back on it but it felt like an eternity and a half when I was in the thick of it and then I went to Neve for a year after that I went to Neve Yerushalayim to study in seminary which was amazing and I was so grateful to have that whole year of an experience it really did make a difference and also something that I feel like really did help in general, with integration into from society post-conversion was that I lived with a family when I was in the conversion process. I wasn't just in an apartment by myself trying to like read books and figure out what was going on. I lived with the from family. I rented a basement apartment in a house. And so I was really able to see what it was like on a, on a lived level, like to really see what it was like running a household, making Shabbos, dealing with kids, trying to get them to eat dinner. <laughs> Constant struggle to this day. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Um, so I feel like that was also very stabilizing and I, I strongly encourage if anyone has an opportunity to do that, like, or to open up their home, maybe to someone who's in the process, it, it is so much more effective and impactful than just reading books or reading articles or going for a Shabbos meal to really see the way a Jewish home functions is, ex is exceptionally helpful. And I came back from seminary and then I met my husband and then I got married and Baruch Hashem, we have five beautiful children. And it's been, I would say it took me about seven years to really feel comfortable in my own skin as a from Jew, post-conversion, like seven years. You also just mentioned husband, kids. So you advanced the story a good number of years there. So I just want to unpack a couple things there. <laughs> How did you meet your husband and what was his background compared to yours? 
Sure. So I actually met him because his brother was doing a fellowship in allergy. His, his brother's a doctor. He's also a doctor. He was doing a fellowship in St. Louis. He's an allergist. And so they were in a house down the street from where I was living, and they had me for a couple of Shabbos meals. And they thought, oh, maybe this girl would be good for Raphael, my husband. <laughs> so that's how I met my husband, which is, I'm, I'm so grateful to Hashem because it was really such a wonderful way to be introduced to my spouse. And his family is um, from Ukraine. They came in the early 90s with that big wave of, um, I mean, it was the U.S., former Soviet Union. It wasn't Ukraine then. It was all, you know, the Soviet Union. So he came with the wave of um, refugees or, yeah, I guess asylum seekers, whatever you want to say, in the early 90s when a lot of people were finally able to leave the Soviet Union. And his family was sponsored by the Memphis community. That's the community that sponsored him. So that's where they went. Him and his his mother and her parents and his aunt and her son and his brother. So they all came to Memphis, Tennessee. So Memphis is just about four hours south of St. Louis. So when my husband drove up to meet one of his new nieces, they they sprung me on him. They're like, okay, she's available. You're available. <laughs> you're going out tonight. Wait, but he was Jewish? Yeah, yeah, he was always Jewish. Okay, but he was yeah. religious or he was very uh, secular? Yeah. No, no, well, so yeah, I mean, they were obviously secular because communism. But then when they came to Memphis... I think one of the conditions was that they went to Schechter. So he had like Baruch Hashem, a taste of Yiddishkeit there. And then his older brother became from in college and he kind of like brought the whole family along. They all became from, even his grandparents. This is all before he meets you? Yeah, this is all. When he was in high school, he became from. So I like to say he's FFT from from teen. <laughs> but how did he feel about the fact that you had converted? Did that matter to him at all? Baruch Hashem, no. It didn't, didn't make a difference to him. Like on paper, we don't make any sense. Like our backgrounds have like literally nothing in common. But Baruch Hashem, we've been married for like 15 some odd years. <laughs> were you kids. worried about that at all when you the, were the converting? Thing? No. Like, when you were converting, did you think, oh, am I, I might get accepted into the community, but how hard or easy will it be to get married? Like, will this be some kind of like strike against me or like because I'm not raised this way or you or didn't? come up as an issue? No, I didn't feel that as an issue. I actually was a little bit more worried about it when I was in, in the different streams because I sensed that if I was like too into Judaism, I sensed that that might be a bit of a turnoff. I wasn't sure if that would be something that would be such a, a plus for me. But then when I moved into the, the Orthodox world, I didn't get a sense that it was going to be a problem. And I knew other converts who had gotten married and, and, and it was fine. So I wasn't, I wasn't so concerned about that. You know, one told me about shit come for my children, but uh, no, I'm not, I'm not worried about that either. <laughs> Where does your life take you now that you've found your soulmate? You mentioned, I think you said five kids. So yeah, that obviously happened over a period of time. So where did you settle as a couple? So we are in Cleveland, Ohio. We've been here most of the time. We had a little stint in Baltimore, Maryland. My husband did his residency in Cleveland. So we ended up here shortly after um, we got married. And then he had a job in Baltimore for a few years. We loved Baltimore. It was great. But then all his family ended up in Cleveland. So we thought, oh, well, let's just see if you can get a job in Cleveland if, since everyone's there. Um, so we ended up moving back to Cleveland about eight years ago, I think. We've been here since then. And we love it. We love Cleveland. It's a fantastic place. What do you see in your kids, given the fact that they're being raised with it from the beginning compared to how you are? Like for me, the biggest thing is not being able to help with half of the homework. <laughs> Yeah, I hear that. So I've always been really nerdy. So I did throw myself into learning a lot of the textual stuff and learning the language and, and grammar and diktuk. Like I'm really into all that stuff. So I can help them to a certain point. And then Baruch Hashem, my husband, is able to help them with the Gemara stuff. That is beyond me. Art Scroll is very helpful, though. I want to give a shout out to Art Scroll for creating the English uh, language Gemaras. Thank you for all of that. But um, I, I think that the biggest part for me is 
understanding that my children are being raised with it. So they have a completely different appreciation for it for them. It's like brushing their teeth and like riding a bike. I don't even know how to explain it. It's like just part of their life. And so they don't have that, that same level of like awe and like adult mature appreciation for the details of Judaism. But at the same time, they're being raised with it. So it's like in their pores, it's like in their essence in a way that it'll never be for me. But um, trying to make sure that I am having the appropriate level of enthusiasm when I am talking to them about things that I'm being quote unquote normal about it, but not um, I don't like I don't want them to be apathetic. I don't want them to do it by rote, but I don't want them to be constantly rolling their eyes either at me. I mean, they will anyways when they're teenagers, as far as I understand. But like, you know, from a religious standpoint, I just want to raise them in a way that they are going to have like a really solid foundation that they will be able to then like, you know, make their own choices about where, where, how and where they connect to Yiddishkeit in their own specific ways, like to not superimpose like my desires or my fears or or any of my hangups or whatever, to just let them be their own people and to understand that their experience is different than mine in a way that I will never be able to fully understand and to like kind of respect that, but also to infuse some of my, the excitement that you have when you come in as an adult, but kind of like, you know, put that in in like as, as subtle of ways as, as I possibly can. <laughs> yeah, I think about this a lot because I, I recognize that I came to it as an adult. So I made this choice once I'd matured and I'm like, I'm like happy about the fact that it's like a choice I made. And so how am I handling that choice by not giving my kids a choice? And I like wonder, <laughs> was that is that what are you supposed to do with that? Right. But yeah. you, I think you can only hope that you're showing them through what you're modeling, like how happy you are about that choice, that they see that it's like a good lifestyle and they want to stick with it once they get to a point where they realize they don't have to do exactly what their parents are doing. Yeah. And I think that's that's very well put. Of course, they all have their own choice. They all have Bechira. But um, something that I have found particularly helpful is just really asking a lot of questions to friends who have been there before. I have a lot of FFB friends. I ask them questions like, is this normal? Is this normal? Like, he doesn't want to go to Mini, doesn't want to learn Gemara, doesn't want to get up, whatever. Is that normal? They're like, yeah, he's you know 11 or whatever, whatever it is, you know, just like making sure that I'm asking people who have wisdom and have experience and have context like, is this a normal thing for a child to be doing? Because it's easy to have that little bit of panic. Like, I made this choice. I turned my entire life around, you know, and then they have a completely normal, like, response of not being excited about something because they're nine or, or whatever it is. And to recognize that I don't need to panic. They're going to make their own choice. And exactly as you said, like, I'm modeling it. I'm going to live it. I'm going to be connected. I'm going to do my best and then daven and then they're, they're their own people on their own journeys. You know, that's like the hardest part of parenting in general. Like they're their own people. They're going to make their own choices. Oh my gosh. Yes. My sister always says she misses the years when she could just pick up the kid and put them in a car seat. Like it just doesn't work that way when they get older. Indeed it does not. <laughs> so I want to ask you one last question before we close the interview with the lightning round. You and I have something in common. Today you are a podcast guest, but you are also a podcast host. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your show? Sure. I co-host Deep Meaningful Conversations, the DMC podcast with my friend Alex Fluxer. And um, we started it three years ago. It's, our, it's going on our third year. And we interview all sorts of different women who are you know, experts in their field or have an interesting life story or have written a, a book that we think we want to delve into. Anything that is kind of like on the minds of like from women, we try to approach those topics and give people a way to be entertained and inspired and to, you know, hopefully make their lives a little bit better, a little bit more meaningful, you know, and they can listen to it as they're, you know, driving carpool or driving back from carpool in an empty car, probably more realistically or doing laundry or on a walk or whatever. We like to say it's like having coffee with friends. 
And what are a few of the topics that you've had recently? We just interviewed Bracha Palyakov, who just, um, together with Rabbi Anthony Manning, put out the book Reclaiming Dignity by Mosaic Press about SNES. So that was one we just did. We interviewed Yael Trush, who is like a finance expert on like, you know, from finances. That's all. That's also a baffling topic for people who come into the community, like understanding how we're supposed to afford to actually be from. Um, we've had a number of parenting experts. We've had Rochi Koval come on about parenting. That was very popular. Blimey Heller talked about parenting. We've talked about resilience. We've talked about toxic negativity, toxic positivity, <laughs> like really so many different like psychologies, spirituality books. Like we, I don't know, personal development. Those are some of the topics. All right. So let's now go to the lightning round with a few fast questions to close out the interview. Are you ready? I'm ready. First question. How do you think Orthodox Judaism differs in more out-of-town type communities compared to places that have a, a higher concentration of religious Jews? Oh, that's a great question. I'm actually a little bit obsessed with this topic, the in-town, out-of-town divide. I've only ever lived out of town, so I can't say definitively, but I think that in general, my concept is that like when you live out of town, like everyone's a little bit more necessary, so to speak, in order to make the community really function and everyone feels like they really matter and they have a role. And I think that plays a big part in people feeling connected to each other. But at the same time, there's, le there's less amenities. There's less places to eat out. There's less places to buy from clothing. There's less school choices. And so that can be challenging sometimes if it's not a good fit for you. In town has like a tremendous amount of resources and amenities. Resources for kids with learning disabilities is not comparable. Like out in town has like so much more. I love going to New York. I love going in town. I like just love the feeling of being around so many Jews. Like I think it's so cool. And I think there's a, a lot of amazing things about in town, a lot of amazing things about out of town. And I think that it's really just being honest with like where where will you be best? Like where will it be best for your kids? Where will it be best for you, um, Jewishly speaking, and connecting to Hashem and connecting to Yiddishkeit? Different flavors. Second question, you talked about a love for music earlier in the interview, and I've interviewed a bunch of musicians who, when they became religious, there was this question of Friday night and Saturday are like major performance days, and if I give that up, is that going to just kill my career? What advice would you give to someone who's maybe inspired by your story, but is really into music, maybe thinking about doing it professionally, is now concerned if, if I keep this journey, it's going to affect my musical career? I don't think that I'm going to have like anything particularly... Uh heartwarming to say about this because it really isn't possible. <laughs> I think that um, there's a lot of ways to use music in the firm world, but I think that the model is completely different than in the outside world. And I've spent at least a decade trying to figure out how to use my musical abilities in the from context. And it really has taken understanding what are the options and what are the availabilities within the from world? Um, like where are the opportunities? For men, there's more opportunities. You can do weddings, you can do simchas and things like that. For women, there's fewer opportunities to really make a parnasa at it. At the same time, there's still opportunities to use it. So I don't know if it's the kind of thing that could be like a full-time parnasa. Maybe if someone really, really, really hustles and lives in a big city, it could be possible. Not out of town. That said, I did, before this interview, just come from a rehearsal where I was playing piano for a sitter play for one of the local day schools. And so that's something that I continue to do, and I love doing it. And I'm using music in a way that I never would have anticipated playing piano for a bunch of kindergartners who are getting their sitter. Like, it's, you have to be really on your toes because, like, you never know if they're going to go fast or slow or fast and slow at the same time. It's definitely very satisfying musically, but it's not comparable to what I was doing before. So it, it requires a lot of pivoting and being open-minded and accepting that it may not be what you picture. But, you know, when Hashem gives you a talent, you really do have an achrayas to see if you can find a way to use it. 
And by the way, some of the performers that I spoke to who had so much angst about giving up weekend performing, when they finally made that commitment, they said that their career took off in a way that they didn't expect. Oh, interesting. And so it's a little bit counterintuitive, but it's almost like Hashem rewarded them for doing it. I'll have to go back and listen to those interviews and see who they were. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last question. What advice would you give to from, from birth people on the best ways to interact and welcome converts or even people who are undergoing the conversion process? I would say respect their privacy because it's so normal to be curious. So incredibly normal. At the same time, not everyone wants to like give over their story every single time they're at a, a simcha or a kiddush or at a chasnan or something like that. So basically, I would say view them like you view like an orphan because that's, I mean, like Garam and Yisamim are in a similar category. Like they're not going to have family. They're not going to necessarily know the social nuances. So like be a friend for them, support them, see if they need something. Remember them around like, you know, Yantav, around different simchas. Like if they're making a simcha, like think what would you do for a sister or a cousin and maybe reach out and see if they could do that because they probably don't even know what to do. Maybe people don't want to be reminded that they're different, but at the same time, their background is different. So they might need some support and to try to do it in as a sensitive way as possible. That's what I would recommend. Beautifully said. And as I'm reflecting on your story and how it began with this case of mistaken identity, you are someone who clearly through the course of this process found your true identity, which is really remarkable. So I just want to say uh, thank you so much, Rifki, for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. It has been such a pleasure and just uh, continue to have a slacha in your incredible work that you're doing. Amen. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.